Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your grace and your mercy, and we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open to us uh, what you would have us to see here and uh, take into our own lives today, for um, thy word is truth, and we pray that we would feast upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're actually, we're not making much headway through the book of Acts, and I'm even taking huge chunks. Um, but Mark Genelette will be with you the next two weeks, which will be fun. Mark's always great. And, um, and, then, uh, and then over the summer, we're going to do what we did last year, these summer conversations where we bring in folks uh, to do interviews. So we've got a, a pretty good lineup of folks uh, who are coming in. Uh, just to give you a little preview, uh, folks like Richard Simmons uh, and has written his new book. He's going to come in and uh, have an interview with me, and we're going to talk about his book. Uh, and then uh, a guy that I went to high school and college with um, uh, who was an Academy Award nominee. Uh, he's going to come in and talk about film and faith and things like that. Uh, so he just had a, a baby. Uh, so he's anxious to get to Birmingham uh, and, uh, and to be with, with us. So he'll, uh, Greg Helvey will be coming in uh, over the summer. And there are, uh, obviously all summer long we'll have somebody or something going on here uh, in the dean's class. So take a look at the schedule. But this morning, uh, we're in the book of Acts again, and um, the book of Acts is the story of ebb and flow, of uh, coming at it from my perspective, uh, times of great triumph and of great joy, and then times of great grief and sadness, although Luke never really records the reaction to the things that would cause me grief and sadness. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, even in these opening verses of Uh, Acts chapter 12, um, a a sad time in the life of the church. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king, this is not the Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus. This is a different Herod. There there were lots uh, lots of Herods. It's like having a guy named Bill Smith as king. Um, The king laid violent hands on some, although clearly it's genetic. uh, The king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, so the first apostle to be martyred. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church." Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and awoke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Well, <laughs> now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the, that the people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. 
And when he knocked at the door, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, and they saw him, and they were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance amongst the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. We'll get to the rest later. Well, um, a pretty remarkable story. Uh, you know, this is better than like a billboard lawyer uh, calling to say, I've been, you know, I've been arrested. Uh, come and get me. Uh, this, is, this is what you want if you're in jail, uh, most especially if you're uh, being jailed unjustly. But I'm always, and I, I talk about this, but a lot of times I will hear Christians and especially church leaders say that we really want to get back to what the church was like in the New Testament. And then I read about James and uh, others, and I think I'd rather not, <laughs> right? I, I can pass uh, on that kind of stuff. Uh, but indeed, things haven't changed uh, in the uh, many, many centuries uh, since Jesus walked this earth. He said it. Look, they don't like me. They hate me, and they're going to kill me. Why should you be surprised if they do the same to you? In fact, in some ways, it's going to be much worse for you than it was uh, for me. And the way that the world has always gone about trying to get rid of the Christian faith, it has been twofold. It's one, to try to silence it, and if that doesn't work, to kill it. It's always been, always been the case. And so from the time of, uh, it's one thing, remember, very early on in Acts, that their main objective was to get people to st stop preaching. Stop preaching. And when they wouldn't stop preaching, they started to kill them. Well, that has been uh, the pattern of behavior of the world since then, and even up into uh, the 20th century uh, with... Um, those in the confessing church in Germany, which was the underground church, you may know that the church in Germany largely went along with Hitler's schemes, uh, even knowing some of the dastardly things he was doing. And so there was a group that decided that they weren't going to stand for it, and they were going to organize their own church, albeit underground, uh, and they were going to preach the gospel. But it went from that to actually being made manifest in terms of political action, uh, as in an as several assassination plots against Adolf Hitler. So one of the things that the movie Valkyrie, if you've seen it with Tom Cruise, um, that totally misses out is that in those meetings where all these politicians were and soldiers trying to overthrow Hitler, they were all Christians, all very committed believers, uh, and that is what motivated them to get to the point of trying to get rid of Adolf Hitler, even though they struggled with it. I mean, that was another thing, that they didn't come to that conclusion lightly. 
And so Hitler knew that something was going on and tried to stomp them out and tried to stomp them out, and he couldn't. He couldn't silence them. He couldn't bring them into submission until finally, after the Wolfstein plot failed, blew it to smithereens, but uh, Hitler uh, did not die in it. Um, the cat was out of the bag, and everybody knew who was involved. And so if they didn't die by firing squad, Hitler had them hanged publicly with piano strings. Now, why would he do that? He wanted to send a, a signal, pretty clear, to anybody who would step in the way of his juggernaut, they would get steamrolled. And yet, in the midst of that, Christians were standing up and they were, they were speaking up. In fact, there's a very sad story of an elderly blind woman who was standing at a train station and overheard her neighbors while waiting for the train uh, that um, uh, about the Wolfstein layer uh, explosion, and she thought that he said, the Fuhrer is dead. And she said, just loud enough for him to hear him, she said, thank you, Jesus. And it was an SS officer, and he turned, and she was killed on the spot. They hung her right there in the train station. There's a photograph of it that you can see. Being a Christian has... Uh, very rarely been a safe, a safe thing. Uh, those of us who live in the West uh, have enjoyed the luxury of the state at least accommodating us uh, at, at some level, uh, but, uh, but at a cost. And I think that it's at least caused me to be very complacent. Uh, in my sermon this morning, I talk about the demographic known as the nuns that, uh, that really don't believe in excuse me, really don't believe uh, in anything. And I, I think it's understandable why the geographic location that saw the most significant jump in percentage of people who said, I don't believe in anything, or that's not really the way to say it, I don't affiliate with any religious system, is the South, uh, because uh, in some ways, ministry is harder here. When I was in Beaufort, South Carolina, randomly, the Bishop of Rhode Island showed up. And a very lovely uh, lady, and uh, she, she'd been a, a, a single her whole life until recently. She had married uh, a man, and they were uh, in Beaufort on their honeymoon. Really lovely place to go. And so she just randomly showed up in the bookstore, and our bookstore person ran up and said, there's a bishop in the bookstore, <laughs> but I don't know if it's real because he's a she. I mean, the bishop's a she. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take care of it. And actually, Geraldine Wolf is a delightful, lovely lady. And, uh, and I went down, and I was giving her the tour. And, um, and she said, well, how many people are in Beaufort? And I said, about 13,000. And she said, well, how many members do y'all have? I said, 1,500. And she said, so wait a minute. Over 10% of the city goes to your church, right? It would be like 100,000 people being a member of the Advent. And... Uh, yeah, try, try going out to dinner in that town uh, without being bothered. Um, but uh, she said, you know, ministry is just so much easier in the South. It's like, you clearly don't know Buford. Everybody here is a carpetbagger, right? I mean, everybody everybody's, you know, from up north, and they've retired and come to Buford, uh, and they love it. But there's this assumption that she's articulating, which many people believe, is that, well, the South is just an easier place to do ministry, but I found it much more difficult because there's a lot of baggage. 
And some people have baggage and some people have U-Haul trailers. <laughs> and in the South, we love trailers, right? We got our U-Haul trailers. And so we're, we're to toting them along and trying. I mean, you're not like in the book of Acts, uh, you see, I think the closest thing that you can get uh, is in the apostles' ministry to the Jewish folks. They've got, they've got the baggage that the Greeks don't have because they don't have any semblance of the God really that, that Paul and Peter and the others are talking about. They don't have, uh, they've never heard that before. This is all new news uh, to them. Uh, where in the South, pretty much everybody um, can articulate the gospel. Um, now that's becoming less and less the case, but, but I really actually shouldn't say the gospel. I think that people can articulate who Jesus is, that he died on a cross for them, but getting beyond that is very difficult, and that's where conversations with them are fraught with disaster because they have all kinds of ideas about who God is and what God is like, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done or has not done for them. And so a lot of folks in the South, now the Northeast and the West, they've got their own problems, uh, but, but for a lot of folks who grew up in a Christian household, they got burned by the church, right? They assumed, I'm a Christian if I don't drink, if I don't smoke, and if I don't mess around, in the words of Dr. John. Uh, if I don't do those things, then that's what makes me a Christian. But if I do do those things, then even my salvation is, is in jeopardy. I was playing golf with a guy the other day, and uh, you really get to know somebody on the golf course, four hours of vulnerability, <laughs> right? I mean, golf brings out, someone said, well, the golf brings out the worst in people. I said, golf brings out the real people. Right? Because it does. It sort of shows you as, as you talk about walking in the light. Everybody should play golf. That and uh, I told you about the couple who wanted to do, uh, didn't want to do premarital counseling with me because they didn't think they needed it. So I said, I'll tell you what. You don't have to do it. If you two, I'll set it up. I want you to do a tandem kayak day trip in Womball Swamp. That afternoon they called after they got out of the swamp and they said, we'll see you next week. Those of you who have been in a tandem kayak or canoe with your spouse know what I'm talking about. But a lot of folks have grown up thinking uh, that, that things are a certain way. And so this guy asked me on the golf course, very straightforward, he says, is there anything I can do to earn my way into heaven? He wasn't testing me, but what he, was, he said, you know, I, how can I be sure I'm going to get into heaven? How can I be how do I know I'm good enough? And I said, there it is, right? There, you, you've answered your own question. You'll never, ever be good enough. And yet we've created a system uh, in the South that, uh, that Christian is on par with right living and, and right behavior. Now, that's not to say that the Christian faith is not concerned with morality. It is. It is. But when that, the way that that takes shape is the Holy Spirit of God, which dwells within you, begins to shape and mold you into the image of Jesus, right? He begins to transform you. Uh, otherwise, it would just be, uh, you know, us trying to get by on our own with maybe a little bit of help from Jesus. And that's kind of it. In the South, Jesus is sort of uh, an addition uh, to our lives that makes things better.
better. And then we go to cocktail parties, and one of the questions that's often asked in Birmingham is, where do you go to church? They, without flinching, will tell you. It's very rare that, um, that, you, that that doesn't come up in cocktail conversations or that, that, um, that people say, well, I don't go to church. I mean, depending on what part of Forest Park you live in. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's really hard to find in Birmingham. But with that, I almost would rather sit down and talk with somebody from Forest Park or wherever they happen. They live everywhere. But sit down with them and, and open up the Bible because there are times when people will say, well, I don't believe this, this, and this about God. And I'm like, where did you get this stuff from? And sure enough, they've gotten it from, you know, the book of Second Opinion, right? Somebody from off in their past has come up with some uh, crazy idea uh, about who God is. But also there's the issue of dealing with their own human circumstances. I mean, it may be that they've gone through something really traumatic in life and they felt completely and totally abandoned. Or someone that they looked up to in the faith has totally blown it and their faith was wrecked as a result of it. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I did an interview with Andrew Yeager recently uh, on, on NPR, and, uh, and he was talking about whether or not the church really had a place in society anymore and whether or not the church could relate uh, to the culture. And I said, you know, the church has done a really bad job of articulating the gospel to the world. I said, because a lot of churches are preaching answers to questions that nobody is asking. They're preaching answers to questions that nobody is asking. And so you might leave and say, well, that, that's, that's nice, right? That's nice. I was in New Orleans once and uh, was in church on Sunday at a Roman Catholic church on the other side of the French Quarter, and uh, it was packed out. And there was this little uh, Dominican monk that climbed up in the, uh, in the pulpit, and he looked out and he said, just be nice to one another. And then he got down out of the pulpit, and I said, well, this church has got some issues, apparently. Um, uh, but, I mean, if that's the, I, I was going to say that's the gist of the message, but if that is the message, uh, just be nice to one another, uh, then uh, why would you go to church? You know you should be nice to one another. Uh, why, why would there be any incentive for you going to church? Now, obviously, a lot of us approach church and want it to be the place where our batteries get charged from week to week. And I hope that happens. I hope that you encounter God uh, in this place, that he's tangibly present. Uh, but church is primarily about worship, right? Worshiping, worshiping God. Uh, it's more about him than it is uh, about us. And so this message that... Uh, Peter and, and the others have, uh, when it's proclaimed, uh, and we see here in, with, with Peter, he's not meddling, right? There's not an, a, he's not sort of latching on to some issue that's prevailing in the culture. Uh, he's simply preaching, and you're going to see that in Paul's sermon in chapter 13. He's simply preaching, and it's just upending everything. It's upending all the structures. And so, unfortunately, in the world that we live in, uh, the way that Jesus handled things and the way that Jesus has done things and did things has been largely lost. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, Jesus had a way about him that he was a friend of sinners, and yet the message was never, ever compromised. It's a very hard thing to do. Our propensity as human beings is just to drop the hammer, right? Just drop the hammer. I mean, especially uh, with, with children. 
Uh, you know, my, you know, I want to set everything to right, make it work, make it all happen. Uh, and when somebody does something wrong, uh, if you're looking for benefit of the doubt, you're looking at the wrong guy. Just where children are concerned. I have a bias against kids. I'm just kidding. But, uh, and that's the propensity of the church. And so you see those, uh, those moments in, in the Gospels, like when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, who's the worst guy in town, the worst. Uh, and he's been stealing from everybody. And, uh, you know, from Sunday school songs, he was a wee little man. Right, he's a little, he's Weasley looking, right? He's just a, I mean, Luke goes out of his way, to, he, and he was a man small of stature, meaning he's a little Weasley looking, nasty little man, right? Randy Newman's song, Short People. So, uh, so he hears Jesus is coming, he can't really see because it's packed out, so he climbs up into a sycamore tree, this is in Jericho, and, uh, and by the way, if you go to Jericho and they say, this is the sycamore tree, they're lying. They're lying to you. It's not. Uh, although it's a very nice looking tree. Uh, but uh, he climbs up into the sycamore tree and sees Jesus as he, uh, as he passes by. And Jesus looks up at him and calls him by name and says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree for I'm going to eat at your house tonight. Now, what was the reaction of his entourage, the people who were wel- the welcoming committee, right? The mayor and the, you know, the, the official people? They were mortified, and then they were angry. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you know who this, who this guy is? Right, so one of the things about the gospel is it's incredibly personal. Right? Jesus calls you by name. He doesn't see us as an amorphous blob. He sees you, and he meets you at your point of need, even if you're the worst person in town even if you're in the worst person in town. And the church has uh, really not done a very good job of dealing with people who are like Zacchaeus. Um, I was talking to a minister friend of mine who was kind of up in arms, and he said, you know, we've got these people showing up at church now that are, uh, he referred to them as trustafarians. Uh, that is uh, kids that are doing nothing with their lives but have a trust fund. And uh, I know. And uh, wouldn't it be nice? So uh, he's like, I've got these trustafarians, and you know, they don't believe anything. And, it's, and he's like, you know what? It would just be better if they didn't come to church. I just thought, pack it up, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, you might as well hang it. But he was afraid of having somebody like that in his church. And what I tried to challenge him with was that it actually had more to do with his confidence in what God was able to do. Do you think God could change their heart? And of all people to have, I mean, the thing about Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus' conversion experience is you're converting someone who still has a ton of influence and is going to be an incredible witness for the gospel. And as a response, when his heart has changed, he not only gives back all the money that he stole from everybody, he gives it back much more. He actually gives charitably to the people that uh, he once stole from. And he's not doing it to keep things even, uh, but he's doing it because he's actually able uh, to rest in the knowledge uh, of, I'm a bad guy, I don't have any friends. You know what? It may be that the only friend I have is in Jesus, but so be it. So be it. And so you have a changed life in Zacchaeus. And when the gospel is preached, because it's personal, it shakes things up. And people have a very definite reaction. So if I was in Jericho that day, I mean, I I wouldn't particularly want to see Zacchaeus in heaven with me, right? I mean, we have those people in our lives that we wish would stay up in the tree, 
right? Tons of people that you want to stay up in the tree. Uh, don't come down, just stay uh, right where you are. And yet the gospel preached causes a reaction uh, within uh, all of us. And in the world, it's always opposition. It's always opposition. Uh, and even if it seems like there's general acceptance, it's conditional. It's conditional. It's fine for you to do this. We saw this early on in Acts. Remember, everybody loves Stephen. Everybody, like if there was a sitcom in the first century, it would be called Everybody Loves Stephen. And uh, everybody loves Stephen. And, uh, and yet, the moment, why did they love Stephen? First off. They loved him because of all the charitable stuff he was doing. Remember, they set aside a, a group of men uh, to be deacons in the church to, do, to care for the widows and the orphans and uh, those without, uh, without food and without money. And the church was doing a great work, and they loved him. But then what happened? Stephen started to preach. And what did they do? They killed him. Right? They killed him. So, I mean, talk about going from one extreme to the next. Like, we love Stephen. We love the work you're doing. Just don't preach. Don't talk about this Jesus. Don't do any of that. Just stick with the humanitarian stuff. But, of course, with Stephen and with the church, it wasn't one over and against the other. One was the outflow, the natural growth out of the gospel. Right? Because Jesus had changed Stephen's heart and the members of the church's hearts, they, in turn, reached out to those who would even want them dead. Now that is, uh, is a pretty uh, powerful testimony to love those who would even uh, want you dead. Now, Peter has been imprisoned um, because uh, of his preaching. He's been on a real roll lately uh, in his preaching and so Herod has him arrested during the feast of the Passover. So this is probably the first year since this is a year anniversary of Jesus' death. And, uh, and he put four squads of soldiers, right? We're not talking about four soldiers. We're talking about a lot of soldiers in order to guard Peter. And then uh, Peter gets out, although it's very funny. The, the, the angel is giving all these instructions but doing all these amazing things. If I were Peter, I would say, well, can't you just do this for me? You know, why don't I, you know, you seem to be doing everything else. Why not just go ahead and, you know, make my clothes pop on? Uh, but, uh, but one of the things that I would say about that is that even though it's the Lord's work, it's a real blessing that we're asked to be a part of it at all. all right? That God actually uses us to further his kingdom uh, where he really doesn't need us. So when somebody says God has no hands, he has no feet, you are God's hands and feet, that's kind of true. But it's not as if God is up in heaven looking down upon us saying, oh my goodness, I don't have hands or feet. What shall I do? Right? God's providence, God's sovereignty cannot be thwarted. And yet in his mercy, it's a merciful act, he actually uses us uh, to, uh, to further the cause and the word of the gospel. And so uh, Peter somehow gets out with the help of the angel, escapes unscathed, and then uh, Luke, uh, very funny, uh, in, pa- in fact, um, you know, when, when the Gospels or Acts start naming names, uh, it's either in a really good light or a really bad light. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately for Rhoda, uh, it's, it's a moment of stupidity. 
Uh, and so a servant girl named Rhoda uh, came to answer the door, and recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So here's my man just escaped from prison. They're like, hello? Hello? I mean, there he is standing out in the street, waiting to be let in, while she's off saying, hey, I think he's at the gate. Uh, and they say, no, no, it couldn't possibly be him. Uh, but then um, you're crazy. Uh, but, uh, but of course... It, uh, it was Peter, and he goes into uh, hiding. Now, very few of us probably have ever been in a situation where we've had to go into hiding because of our faith. Right? Now, that's happening all over the world today. Uh, it's happening in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. It's happening certainly uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, but there's also a different kind of underground uh, that is happening in the West, and that is Christians not feeling as if they can share their faith. And I'm not talking about some sort of overt turn or burn. I mean, I was in the back of a cab once, and the guy, I, I mean, we hadn't even started the meter, and he said, do you believe in the rapture, right? You know, that, that uh, is a question I, I don't want to get into, right? And I don't want to hear about it, especially if I'm stuck in a cab. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff, uh, but... Uh, I'm, I'm talking about actually just simply being a Christian, being able to live out your faith, being able to share the gospel uh, with those especially who would like uh, to hear. Uh, and so there's a sense in which in the West, we've gone into hiding. You know, we've been the ones who have gone uh, underground. And, uh, and so it's no wonder that there's great confusion over who Jesus is and what he has done uh, for this broken and fallen world. Picking up at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, that's a good name for a kid, Blastus. Uh, wonder what he'll grow up to be. Uh, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man, basically attributing divinity to, to Herod. Uh, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Man, what a, uh, that's, that's a heck of an obit. Um, uh, but the word of, here it is, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so Herod is giving a word to a political kingdom, Tyre and Sidon, which is up on the Mediterranean coast, uh, just northwest of Jerusalem. And while he's delivering this word, this royal proclamation, he dies. And then Luke has this wonderful phrase, but the word of God, and he's dead. He has breathed his last. He is finished. No more word will ever come from Herod. His authority has ended, right? The king is dead. Long live the king, right? And Bar but the word of God increased and multiplied, right? That's the thing about Christianity, is that you can try to crush the church, but the gates of hell will never prevail against it. The gospel is forever. Same yesterday, today, and forever. 
It's ineffable. It's always there. It's always moving on. It's always uh, undefeatable. Uh, that even when it seems like the light has totally gone out, there's still a light that shines in the darkness. So that's what makes the trial of Jesus so interesting to me, is that when they cried out for Barabbas over Jesus, it makes total sense. Politically speaking, it makes total sense. Barabbas was often involved in rebellions and insurrections and just kind of doing all these things. He was a real problem. And, uh, but the thing about Barabbas, you release Barabbas... And what's probably going to happen in a matter of months? Repeat offender, right? And, if, and even if, you, if Barabbas and his buddies are causing trouble, you send in a, a, an elite force, you send in a couple tanks, and that'll take care of them. Kill Barabbas, he's done. Or put him back in a jail, he's done. The thing about Jesus is that none of that works. He can't be stomped out. He can't be handled uh, he can't be thwarted. And so uh, in the world in which we live in, uh, we're really not being uh, confronted with death in the same way James uh, was as he died by the sword or Peter uh, or Paul or John Mark. Um, but it really is amazing that, that here we're gathering here on a Sunday morning uh, and we're able to, to talk about Jesus uh, when there are places in the world today that doing what we're doing will get you killed. And I'm, I'm, talk, I'm not just talking about extrajudicial killings. I'm talking about state executions. And uh, it really struck me uh, the profound image of Confirmation Sunday. When how old are they, 13? 13 years old? Here are these 13-year-olds standing up and saying, I believe in Jesus and accept him as my Lord and Savior. And those words would get you killed anywhere else in the world. And yet here they are able to speak them boldly and loudly and and with confidence. And so that uh, the church might take advantage of our ability to share the gospel. Mildly hindered, mildly hindered. The world never wants to hear it. And yet it's uh, a word uh, that the world desperately needs to hear. Questions, comments, concerns? Willis, would you do, be the microphone man? It's a, it's a real honor. That's why David Tanner normally does it. Dr. Wilson the Younger. Yeah, Andrew, you mentioned the pew poll uh, mm-hmm. in your sermon, and, and one thing that the press has conveniently ignored is the fact that uh, evangelical churches were stable and even growing. Right. So I think that uh, we should take uh, comfort in that. Yeah, the thing that, I didn't, um, the thing that I, I didn't talk that much about is why I think that the statistic has gotten greater because last year people just, I, I, they, they said, I'm Methodist, I'm Episcopalian, but they already were at a place where they were, None, uh, but this is the first year where they decide. You know what? I'm going to be. I'm going to be honest and just come out and say that that I don't have that cultural or that historical attachment uh, to it. But yeah, I mean, uh, Peter Berger is a wonderful sociologist at Boston University, and is well worth reading. He's sort of the voice that that is against this idea of secularism in the United States. That is, yes, he said secularism is happening where it's happening. 
But just because it's happening here doesn't mean that it's happening everywhere. In fact, around the world, there's never been more spiritual, religious activity and growth and, and vitality. And so um, where it's especially dying uh, away in Europe, there's a real crisis. In the United States, you're always going to have, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, well, in the United States, we've always had uh, a core group who is decidedly committed to their faith. And, and that's not really changed at all. That, that, is, that has stayed the same. What we've seen is the cultural ebb and flow of whether or not Christianity is, is fashionable. Um, so, uh, you know, as I said once, there was a guy that came into my office and said, you know, I don't believe in Jesus or any of this stuff, uh, but I feel like joining the Advent would be advantageous to my career. And I said, we'll take all kinds. Here's a pledge card. Andrew, you mentioned Rita. in the NPR interview uh, that you that the church is not answering the right question. So in your view, hmm. what question of our age should we be answering? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think right now it's the question, uh, I mean, well, one, always putting out there who we are and who Jesus is. Right? That's, that's the message that, that is preached in, in the New Testament. Uh, now, there are issues that, that, that the church gets mingled with that, that it ought to. I mean, we ought to... And I rattled off some statistics a couple weeks ago about um, the fact that um, one out of every four children in Jefferson County lives in poverty. And uh, the, uh, the statistic for African-American children is three out of every four in Jefferson <coughs> County lives in poverty. So, um, so the church ought to be, we ought to do something. Uh, so there are things that we need to speak to. Uh, but I think the bigger thing, too, is that there, a lack of confidence that Jesus can actually change somebody's life. Uh, the, the mistake that, that Jesus is just a life coach that is helping you along. Uh, I think also um, the, uh, the issue of, um, of what wakes, I mean, what wakes somebody up in the middle of the night is pretty much what wakes up everybody in the middle of the night. And really, a lot of sermons I hear, it sounds like they're not preaching to human beings. Right? It just, they're putting out, out there some platitudes, some ideas that might be worth listening to, but it doesn't, it doesn't strike at the heart. Now, that doesn't mean that every sermon I hear or even every sermon I preach, you know, I'm sure that you all say that. Like, you know, um, at St. Helena's Beaufort, one Sunday I preached, and the guy came out and he said, your last sermon was really good. And then he went on. And I thought, well, that, I know what that means. Um, <laughs> this one was not. Uh, but really, it just means that it didn't connect with him at a level. So I'm not saying that, that I'm connecting with everybody, but I will say that the things that I preach are the things I, I preach to myself. Those are the things I deal with. So that means that there's not a lot of transparency and vulnerability and a willingness of the church to say, we've blown it. We've totally blown it. And, uh, but you know what? We're, we're going to do our darndest by God's grace to get back on track. Okay. Jim. That's right. 
Yeah, I mean, there, Maximilian Kolbe being a very good example of that too, a Roman Catholic priest who was not involved in the assassination plot and um, killed because they were Christians, right? Killed because they were, they were Christians. And that was a message that, that the Third Reich couldn't stand. Uh, it couldn't stand. I mean, on, on, I mean, well, the implications of it are, are significant. I know that it's very easy for us to say, well, of course, Christianity is incompatible, uh, incompatible with, uh, with Nazism, but that's the gift of hindsight. In the moment, it was very difficult for them because there were a whole lot of German Christians who went along with it. Um, and that's actually, for me, the most frightening thing about it is that they weren't, you know, these children with horns, uh, born with horns in Germany, they were people just like you and me. But, the, but the, the sin of the church, and Bonhoeffer and all these guys said that, is that they preferred safety and laying low over, over active involvement and living in the moment. And I can understand that, playing the long game, saying, you know, one day Hitler will be dead. You know, maybe we'll just wait, we'll wait this out, and we'll make... Uh, but the problem with waiting, I mean, at what cost? How many millions of Jews? How many millions of... Uh, 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 I mean, and the other people that were sent to the concentration camps, not just Jews. Andrew, I think probably the most distressing thing about that time in history was the fact that the church capitulated with Hitler. And would you speak to the fact that the church is probably doing the same thing today as we move away from the gospel and go along with the culture, culture and secular? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all. That's it's been hard. I mean, read First Corinthians. Same thing. I mean, the church. Uh, really trying hard to be, uh, as Jesus said in our gospel reading this morning, in the world but not of the world. So the church has always struggled with that, uh, to, uh, to try not to have the culture define who it is and what its guiding principles are. I mean, the church is different. It's different. And that doesn't mean that we don't remain in tune to the culture. I mean, we do. We need to be able to, to understand the issues of our day and to be able to, uh, to address them. And um, so uh, that's always been a struggle. But the churches that tend, um, I, I, well, I think the Advent is a really unique place. Uh, it's, it's one of the few places, I think, that, that upholds um, uh, the gospel uh, but not in a way that's angry. You know, there's a lot of perception that, that, that the church is really angry right now. Um, and, and I hear people time and time again um, say, you know, I, I may not agree with the Advent, or, but, but it's a comfort, like I can go there. I feel safe. I don't feel like uh, I'm being attacked because, of course, uh, we're into attacking everybody. No one is immune from attack. Uh, we're an equal opportunity offender. All right, we'll go in peace to love and serve the Lord.